The passage this morning is from Ephesians chapter 6. We'll be reading verses 1 through 9. And in the uh, Black Pew Bibles, that's on page 1039-1039. Hear the word of the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and that you may have a long life in the land. Fathers, don't stir up, your, stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart, as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves the same way, without threatening them, because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Okay, so Ephesians, we're going to continue in our study in the book of Ephesians, and uh, we're looking at these, what, nine verses, Ephesians 6, 1 through 9. And I want to start by asking you a true or false question, and uh, here is that question. So, true or false, when somebody becomes a Christian, their life should look radically different. True or false? True? False? Okay, so yeah, true. Now, here's another true or false question. Most of the Christians that I know, their lives are radically different than the world's. Don't raise your hand. It's just interesting to think about that, right? Do we look different than the world? You know, this is essentially what we've been talking about for a couple chapters. Um, In Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, we talked about what changed a Christian's life, what put a Christian on a new path. And that's namely, of course, God through his son, Jesus. And then chapters 4 through 6, there's a little bit of a change. There's a practical change in terms of emphasis. And Paul talks now about what a changed Christian's life should look like. And so he talks about really every part of their life should look different. The way you relate to other people should look different. The way you think about the church and ministry should be different. The way you talk, the way you forgive, the way you relate to the world. And of course, that list is ongoing. And so starting last week, we began to consider particular relationships that should look radically different. Last week, we talked about marriage, so the relationship between a husband and wife. Christians' husbands and Christian wives, uh, that relationship should look different. They should relate to each other differently than what we might see in the world. Now, the same is true for two more relationships that Paul talks about, two more categories, and that's children and parents and masters and slaves. Here's the main point. You'll see it on your screen. I encourage you to jot this down if you're taking notes. Our new life in Christ ought to radically reshape our relationships in the home and in the workplace. Our new life in Christ ought to radically reshape our relationships in the home and in the workplace. So, And you guys know this, a good or bad boss can really make or break a workplace situation, right? 
And so can coworkers, coworkers who are humbly following and collaborating and assuming the best of each other and their boss versus coworkers that are undermining and sowing dissension and insisting on their own way. Uh, those are radically different situations in the workplace. Same with the home. A father who is firm and consistent but gentle can go a long way. So can a child who is eager to obey and please his or her parents, right? And of course, we're all, we've all lived through kind of dysfunctional situations, both as the contributor of the dysfunction as well as the recipient of the dysfunction, right? And so what do we need? We need God's help from his word. And, and so that's what this passage in this sermon is dedicated to. These particular spheres, the household as well as the workplace, and I'm going to spend a lot more time, by the way, on the home. Okay, a lot more time on the household, a little bit of time at the end on the workplace. And I want to draw your attention to the sources there on the bottom of the note page. You'll see three or four sources there. That's a great place for you to uh, dig in later. Obviously, I'm not going to be able to cover everything. I also wanted to um, bring in bring into the kind of the sermon, uh, Jenny and I, and, and actually a few other families in Faith Church, we attended a workshop uh, called Raising Sturdy Children, just like three days ago. And so Dr. Keith McCurdy, he's a counselor. He was leading this. This is really helpful. So some of the stuff I'm going to be sharing comes right from doc, Dr. Keith McCurdy, uh, a counselor. You can jump on his website too if you want, okay? So let's jump into godly relationships in the home. So as you put your eyes on verses 1 through 4, what do we see here? We see that children are called to obey in hope, now, I only had a couple of children in the first service. I have way more children in this service. So children, this part of the sermon is for you. I want you to really listen in closely. The rest of the sermon you can kind of ignore, okay? I'm giving you permission. But this part of the sermon, listen in closely. And, and what does Paul say to you? The Apostle Paul is saying this to you, and really, ultimately, God is speaking these words to you this morning. What is he saying to you? He's saying, very simply, you are called to obey your parents, <laughs> There are no conditions to this either, right? It's an all-encompassing kind of command. You know, we like to tell our children, you've probably heard this before, uh, how should you obey? You should obey right away, all the way, and without dismay, right? So it's not only the, 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 the speed the, the, the speed in which you should be obeying, it, it's, it's you need to obey everything that your mom or dad has told you to do, and you should do it with a good attitude. Now, parents, you and I both know, we, we all know that when this occurs, it's a Christmas miracle, right? Um, and yet, this is what we are called or children are called to do. And why? why? Why is Paul kind of bringing forth this exhortation very simply, very clearly? Well, notice Paul lays out three grounds for obedience in the Christian home. Nature, law, and gospel. Three reasons why you, if you're a child, three reasons why you should obey your parents. Here's the first reason. It's part of the natural Law. Notice verse one. It says, "Children, obey your parents in the law, in the Lord, because this is right." So God has written certain kind of rules on the hearts of all people, and so here's standard behavior for really any society. But it's also grounded. Notice in the revealed law of Moses. So put your eyes on verses two and three. Here's the second kind of motivation. Here's a quote from the Ten Commandments: "Honor your father and mother." which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may have long life in the land. So it's commanded in the Old Testament laws. But we also see it's connected to the gospel. And here's why. Paul says, notice in verse 1, obey your parents in the Lord. Let's talk about Jesus. And so part of your obedience to Jesus, children, 
is you obeying your mom and dad. When you disobey your mom and dad, that means you're disobeying Jesus, the God of the universe, right? So think about that. Now, my kids often ask the question, why do we need to obey? What's the answer? Because. because. (laughs) A little bit more than that, according to Paul and God, but, you know, we can start with because. So because Jesus wants you to. That's what Paul says, right? Think with me of the submission which Jesus himself gave as a boy to his parents. Some of those stories as he was growing up, when he was away from his parents, when he was with his parents. And now this same Jesus, as your Lord and Savior children, asks you to do the same thing. So as you clean the dishes or put away your clothes or come home before 11 o'clock or whatever the curfew may be, and and then you struggle to understand why any of this is such a big deal, right? (laughs) Listen, you don't have to believe your parents know best. Or you don't have to believe that doing all these chores and following all these rules makes you morally superior. It doesn't. You just need to know that obeying your parents is the right thing because Jesus wants you to, okay? But I want you to notice one more motivation tucked away in verse 3. Notice it says, and this is a quotation from the Old Testament, so that it, it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land, So here's the only command, according to Paul, that has a promise that's connected to it. Now, that's debatable, but I think we should trust Paul, okay? So so what is he saying? Well, he's saying in the Old Covenant, this promise relates to a long life in the promised land, right? But with the New Covenant, of course, things have changed. The promised land kind, kind of fades from view, and God's covenant people now receive spiritual blessings, So the focus now in the New Covenant is more on spiritual blessings rather than material blessings. And so what does this mean? Well, when New Covenant children, when you obey, it puts you on the path of blessing and health and hopefully someday salvation. Now, I'm not saying that this guarantees salvation, okay, just to be clear, but it makes God's grace readily available to kids who are walking along the path of obedience. And this is why children are called, notice here, to obey in hope. There's a promise connected to their obedience. Now, I just want to make a a, a kind of a side comment that's, of course, related to this. Um, As you're looking at scriptures, passages like Deuteronomy chapter 6, as well as this passage, it's very clear that parents are called to be the primary disciple makers of their children, okay? So you're not kind of delegating that out to the youth pastor or a Sunday school teacher or your super godly mom or something like that. No, mom and dad, you're called to be the primary disciple makers. That means the primary evangelists as well as the primary disciple makers of your children. And of course, everybody else is there to help and support and strengthen you as you're doing that. Now, let's talk about the parents more directly. Notice in verse four, it says, fathers... Don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And so parents are called to train in truth. Verse 4, train in truth. So now, first of, first of all, you'll notice the command is given explicitly to fathers. Not because moms aren't involved, but because fathers have a unique authority, have a unique responsibility in the home. I want you to remember this too. Remember, Christian fatherhood is derived from God's fatherhood, right? And so human fathers ought to care for their own families just like God the Father cares for his family. And so there's there's an authority, there's a leadership, there's a a firmness that's present, yes, but so so is there a, a love and a vision and an instruction, right? Our fatherhood is patterned after God's fatherhood. 
which is really encouraging to think about. And this is really different, by the way, than the ancient Roman view of fathers. So if you're in the first century Roman world, fathers were uh, uh, kind of wielded an authority with kind of a firm grip, and they were not gentle or, or kind often. Uh, at least most of them weren't. In fact, uh, if they had children that were deformed or weak, uh, they would literally cast them aside. Uh, even their quote-unquote normal children, they would kind of put out in the fields alongside their slaves, uh, and they would lock them up with shackles so that they would work all day long. And so this is the kind of environment that, that, that was kind of initially discipling these pre-converted Gentiles in Ephesus, right? This is, this is the, uh, the, the worldly values that were shaping these Ephesians pre-Christians. And now, now that these, these guys are Christians, Paul is saying, hey, listen, your fathering should look different. Your fathering should be marked by a, a kind of a sweet gentleness. Your fathering should be all about educating your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's really, really interesting. So fathers, let me address you before I address both mom and dad. Let me address just the dads. What is your vision for your kids? Is it to be upstanding citizens in what kingdom? You want them to excel in this world, to, to pray, play travel ball, to get straight A's and make lots of money someday and, and kind of to gain a sort of social traction in this world so they kind of make it? Or do you have a spiritual vision that's tied to this other heavenly kingdom? Wouldn't you rather have your kids get straight B's and be an average ballerina or ball player, but be a genuine Christian? who's striving hard after Jesus, who's truly loving people, who's getting straight A's in character and friendliness and kindness and joy, wouldn't you rather have that child? Whatever you're aiming at, that will largely dictate the activity, the feel of your family culture. I know there's uh, moms and dads here. There's grandparents here. Uh, there's some couples here that are expecting. Uh, there's some couples here with very little children. There's some empty nesters here, but all of us, right, are, are meant to be shaping the next generation. So this applies to all of us. And while it begins with the fathers, just mentioned that, and Paul obviously explicitly talks about that, uh, the task of parenting obviously is a partnership between mom and dad, right? So I'm going to approach it that way from now on, kind of moving forward. So verse four, notice it says, don't stir up anger in your children. So other translations say, don't provoke, don't exasperate your children. Paul understands just how delicate a child's personality can be. So, so provoking, what does that look like? Well, it might look like relentless discipline, unreasonable demands, uh, unfair rules, or constant criticism. It might even look like just, just kind of a mild insensitivity towards a particular child's weaknesses. We want to tame the will for sure, right? Especially some of those younger strong-willed children, but we want to do so without crushing the spirit. You know, as I think about my own kids, I've exasperated my kids most when my expectations of them has been way out of sync with reality. You know, I haven't put myself in their world. I haven't taken into account that they're inexperienced and immature. Like, oh my goodness, like my four-year-old, like, oh, he can't do that, <laughs> you know, and, and he can't like go take out the trash. And, and, and so it, really kind of recultivating a set of new expectations based on who they are, their age, and what God has commanded in scriptures. That's so important. During the teen years, we might be tempted to pester them about 
the social circles they have or the music volume in their room or TV choices or whatever, right? And this isn't necessarily bad, having those kind of conversations, but there's a difference between a thoughtful parent's intentional discussion with their teen on one hand, and on the other hand, an emotional parent who just kind of reacts against choices that aren't clearly black and white, or a fearful parent that kind of clamps down too hard because they are intimidated by the big bad world out there, right? So we want to be thoughtful, intentional uh, as we're trying to shape our, our teens. You know what the best antidote to exasperating your kids? It's resolving to enjoy them. Resolving to enjoy them as God's good and precious gifts. In other words, you can't just say no. It's easy for us to say no. So if they're younger, it's easy for us to say no. We need to say no. I want to affirm that. But you got to say yes to some big things too, right? You have to have some big yeses and not just a bunch of no's. And so friends, for every disciplinary moment, there needs to be 100 fun moments. For every corrective word, there needs to be a thousand affectionate words. Now, don't forget how incredibly patient our Heavenly Father has been with us. When we've been grumpy or defiant or moody, how does He deal with us? This is from Exodus chapter 34, the first, one of the first descriptions of our God. He, this is a, a self-description. How does He want to disclose Himself to the people of Israel? Listen, the Lord is compassionate and gracious. It's the first thing He ever said. The Lord is compassionate and gracious slow to anger, abounding in love. This is God's fatherhood towards us. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So may we, may we bear the same attitude, may we treat our kids in the same manner. This sort of patience, this sort of kindness and slowness. Paul also says, notice, bring them up in the training, or a better translation, this discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, the Greek word, therefore, bring them up means to nurture. So this isn't a kind of one-off, I'm going to try to correct your behavior quickly. This is a care for our children, a care for their minds and hearts and bodies over a long period of time, okay? It's amazing how an unruly, defiant four-year-old who is consistently loved and disciplined and instructed can turn into a wonderful young adult. Maybe you can think of particular kids in your lives. Maybe you're you're that kid, right? You're like, oh, I kind of turned out okay. Thank you, mom and dad, right? It's possible. Now, how do we do this? Paul says two things. Notice training and instruction or discipline and instruction. The first is corrective discipline. The second is formative discipline. Discipline. What do I mean by that? Well, formative discipline is teaching our kids to walk on a particular path, showing them the, the kind of the, the, the consequences, the benefits, the blessings, enticing them to keep walking on this path. Well, what is corrective discipline? Well, it's spanking when they get out of line, right? It's helping them to get back onto the path through consequences and punishments. Why is this important for us today? Well, here's why. Because the world is already doing this with our kids. The world is training and instructing, disciplining and instructing our kids in a certain direction, which happens to not be the ways of Jesus, okay? So just flip on the TV for 15 minutes. Um, Our household, we offer streaming services at our home, so there's Netflix and other stuff that our kids and we enjoy. So like for a long time, we haven't seen commercials, right? 
And so maybe there's like, um, I'm trying to think, uh, the Olympics or March Madness or something like that. And so we get a subscription, a cable subscription for a month or two to watch that. And all of a sudden, like, we're glued to the TV, not just because of the Olympics, but we're like, I've never seen that commercial before. And, and everybody's leaning in or we're laughing or chuckling. And, and it's amazing what is coming out through just the commercials on TV. The amount of rainbow flags, two men holding hands, someone who looks like a man but swims against other women. It's all right there in her face. It's almost as if the, the, the world is saying, here's what's true and good and normal. There's the teaching part, right? And of course, if you don't agree with the world's stance on these things, what happens? Well, they're going to slap our wrist or ostracize you, maybe cancel you. There's the discipline part. They are shaping our kids. They are shaping us. It doesn't matter how many limits you give your kids for screen time. The world is catechizing your kids, whether you like it or not. It'd be nice if the world had its own Bible, you know, like a, a book that was a collection of all the world's ideologies. And, and maybe in that book, there was a catechism, a question and answer that would teach kids the world's values and the world's views. And, and the reason I say that is because all we would have to do then is just say, hey, kids, don't read that book. <laughs> be like, hey, don't, you know. But instead, we've got commercials and music and YouTube and blog posts and memes galore, Right? David Wells said this, quote, worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange, close quote. Do you hear that? That is the world's aim. The world is not giving us arguments. The world is just normalizing sin before our very eyes, before the eyes of our children. Uh, a non-Christian family member once uh, mocked me when I was reading the Bible with uh, one of my kids, this is a couple years ago, and, and he said to me, you realize you're indoctrinating your kids. And I was like, you're darn right I'm indoctrinating my kids. The question isn't whether our kids are being indoctrinated. The question is towards what and by whom. They're soaking up everything. Our kids are sponges, right? I mean, I remember a time, um, this is two years ago, I got two boys and we watched Kung Fu Panda, which, by the way, is a great movie, despite what I'm about to say. It's a great movie. It's funny. Go watch it. Enjoy it. But the three days following uh, our boys watching Kung Fu Panda was full of fighting and biting and uh, karate chops and crying and anger. And, and I'm like literally three days, I'm like, Jenny, like, what happened? Did, did we do, are we, is something, oh, they watched Kung Fu Panda. Like, and, and I'm saying that just to illustrate, kids soak things up, right? And this means, friends, that we need to be cognizant of what they're soaking up. Is it the ways of the world, the lies of this world, or is it the ways of Jesus and the truths that God presents through the Bible? What's the solution here? What do we do? Paul says, bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Somebody's going to bring up your kids in the discipline and instruction, but it may not be of the Lord. And that's our job. So training. Let's talk about training, dis disciplining. It means using firm words and actions to uh, crafting kind of clear rules and consequences and being consistent with them. What about spanking? What does the Bible teach about spanking? There's a proverb that says, do not spare the rod of discipline. And I take that to mean, hey, God thinks it's okay to spank our kids. It's one of the things that we can do. I'm not saying that you have to. Don't hear me say that, but I think it's a, a way that, um, especially little kids, uh, it's a way that we can 
um, uh, practice we can utilize to, to discipline our children. I wanna give you a few rules. Never spank when you're angry. Always spank in a restrained fashion. In other words, no marks. And always spank with restoration in mind. And I think that in involves two things. So you want to tend to their hearts. That involves a conversation beforehand when you're explaining perhaps why you're about to spank them. And it involves a conversation afterwards, after the tears are over, you can sit down with them and show them, give them your love, reaffirm your love to them. Um, now, if you've got older kids, the questions start to change, right? You know, there's, there's all kinds of stuff that comes out. Let me, let me get to that later, actually. Um, let's, let's talk about instruction. Let's talk about Bible teaching, okay? You see that? There's discipline. There's also Bible teaching. So what this means for parents is you got to make time at home to not only read and discuss the Bible generally, and that's really good, that's a great start, but to apply the Bible in actual situations that are coming up, right? So someone's hurting in your family. Maybe it's one of your uh, older elementary kids. How does the Bible provide comfort for my child? Someone's struggling with sin. Maybe it's an attitudinal issue, right? Um, you want to ask the question, how does the Bible provide a virtue that will relate to my child? And, and bringing the Bible to bear in the life of your child, right? Someone's making a difficult uh, decision, maybe a, a long-term decision. They're older and they're looking at colleges or, or whatever. Um, what does the Bible have to say? What wisdom does the Bible provide for decision-making? So you want to teach them and train them in such a way where their instincts will be, I'm going to run to the Bible whenever I have a question. I'm going to always run to the Bible for wisdom. So this means quality conversations, right? It means quality discussions with them. You got to take time. It's not just kind of these, these quick moments here and there, but it's sometimes you got to dive in and take time. So, so just a couple statements my oldest daughter has made over the last two years, okay? She's told me, I feel overwhelmed by eternity. Whoa, what, a, what an opportunity to sit down, right, and, and talk to her about eternity and her feelings. She also asked me this question more recently, um, will my stuffed animals go to heaven? Okay, so initially I was like, what? <laughs> and she loves, she's got like a bajillion, bajillion stuffed animals uh, in the room. And so, but here's an opportunity for me to sit down and say, here's what the Bible teaches about heaven, right? And I don't think it ever mentions stuffed animals, right? So I can kind of clarify that uh, with her. Uh, if you've got older uh, kids, the questions, of course, change. They're a little deeper. They're a little bit more complex, right? And, and most of us, most parents, I think, are doing a good job of teaching our kids to have clear biblical conclusions. But I think what, where we struggle is we don't do a good enough job sometimes of giving them the reasons, the arguments for those conclusions. So they, they leave the home thinking that marriage is between a man and a woman. It's a good conviction to have but they may have not been trained to know the arguments, the reasons why that is not only true, but beneficial, okay? They don't have the kind of the superstructure to bear the weight of that conclusion. And so what happens? Well, they get into the world and they get challenged, right? And, 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 and it's easy then to, to get kind of wobbly when it's one biblical conclusion against a thousand cultural assumptions, guess what's gonna win out? Kevin DeYoung recently said, the world is always deconstructing Christianity. We need to deconstruct the world. 
We need to instruct our older kids as they're growing up, as they're starting to put things together and synthesize things, not just the conclusions, but the reasons, the arguments, and the enticements, the blessings, the health that comes from obeying God. It's not arbitrary, right? It's for our good. It's for their good. Now, in an effort to give you as much practical wisdom as possible, let me give you six more applications, and I'm just going to like, boom, just walk through it. And uh, I'll try to do it quickly. So how do we train? How do we instruct our kids? Number one, preach the gospel to them. What is the goal after all? Well, we want to see them converted. We want to see them move from darkness to light, from death to life. All right? Don't assume the gospel. Don't assume that they know the gospel. Don't assume that they've accepted the gospel. They are your son or granddaughter or grandson, but you want them to be your brother and your sister. So do what you can. Preach Christ to them all the time, everywhere. Put them in the path of gospel ministry. Pray for true conversion because it's God's work after all, right? That's what we learned back in Ephesians 1 and 2. Number two, shepherd their hearts. Listen, friends, we're not interested in behavior modification. We're interested in new life, new life, a new life that does different things because their hearts are transformed. They have new affections, right? New affections for God first, but then also for one another, for families and for the church and so forth. And so it, it begins with conversion, but then it moves us into spiritual growth. And this means, hey, haven't I told you? Why are you doing it again? Aren't you listening to me? That's only going to do so much. But by slowing down, with your child, maybe getting on your knees, asking probing questions, opening up the door of their heart and, and getting into what are they thinking? Why are they thinking this? Why are they feeling this? Digging into their motivations and then, and then showing what the Bible has to say about those heart attitudes. If we can just slow down and do that hard work of shepherding their hearts, we would see some incredible fruit. Number three, have loads of fun. Have loads of fun. Uh, playfulness and humor and even silliness. Uh, these are key, I think, because they introduce a kind of lightness into the family culture. And friends, lightness communicates love. Playfulness communicates enjoyment. The gospel should create a home environment of such security and vulnerability that you're laughing more than you're correcting. That's possible. That's possible. Number four, Teach them the ability to live rightly even when it's hard. Listen, friends, we are the most coddled generation in history, certainly in American history. As a result, our kids are more fragile. They're more anxious. They're more depressed. Uh, the numbers, the stats are through the roof. Some of you know this. So what can you do? Don't take away the struggle from your children. Don't take it away because it exists to help them grow and mature. Think about James chapter 1 with me, okay? Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Remember this passage? And, and why, do, why should you consider it joyful and all this good stuff? Well, because your perseverance is going to develop character, and your character is going to help you grow up and mature into an adult, right? A spiritual adult. Well, the same principle is true. The struggle is real. <laughs> but the struggle is also good. So practically, what this means is don't jump in too quickly with a solution, okay? Maybe it's a homework solution. Maybe it's a life situation. Learn to take a step back and let them struggle. 
and watch them grow. Obviously, you're there to make sure they're safe and all that kind of stuff, and you're guiding them, but let them learn to struggle. Let them develop godliness in the midst of the struggle. Number five, develop family liturgies. That's just another way of saying develop spiritually impactful rhythms and traditions in your home. You can be creative. Like what? Let me give you some some ideas, okay? Here's the first one that's probably essential to all of us. Take your kids to church. Take your kids to church. Our kids should never ask us, are we going to church this day, uh, this morning? That should never be on their lips. Other ideas, family worship. So you're sitting down maybe every day or several times a week to to read the Bible and pray and maybe sing some songs. Uh, Pray before bed. It's a simple one, right? Pray for each of your children before they go to bed. And take advantage of the informal times of catechesis as well. You know, use your driving time to work on Bible memory or work through the New City Catechism or just intentionally ask them how they're doing. Take, Take each kid out each month and ask them questions like, where do you need help? Where can I help you? Where are you struggling? Here's a question I ask my two older kids, and it's just hilarious what they come up with. But the question is, how can daddy be a better daddy? And it's, it's humorous, but it's also so instructive. So if I listen carefully enough, right? Uh, number six, I'm going to give you three C's. So I, I feel like I'm cheating. This could be like three more points, but that's okay. Three, three C's, okay? This is something I've been thinking about for probably about two or three years in terms of kind of developing a family culture. Three C's, create, commune, and contribute. Create, commune, and contribute. So these are, these are three C's that are really shaped by, I think, scriptures in different parts. And, and let's, let's put ourselves, Dr. McCurdy did this for us on Thursday night, so I'm going to do it for you guys. Let's put ourselves in mid-19th century Minnesota. Okay, so Little House on the Prairie. Okay, are you there? Yeah. What a, what a place, right? So we're mid-19th century uh, Minnesota, Little House on the Prairie. And my question for you is, what was expected of 13-year-olds back then? What was expected of a 13-year-old girl back then? She'd do a lot. I mean, she'd cook, she'd clean, she'd walk places. She'd cook entire meals for her family, right? What about a 13-year-old boy? What was expected of a 13-year-old boy back then? All kinds of work, right? I mean, they, they were working with animals that are dangerous, and yet they were taught and trained and entrusted and, and to do incredible work. So friends, we need to move our kids from being consumers in the home to being contributors in the home. Your 10-year-old can do way more than you can imagine. She could probably cook a meal for you guys if she was trained and taught in that direction. Your four-year-old can absolutely be taught to do aspects of laundry, whether it's folding clothes or putting stuff in drawers. And if you're like, man, this is too difficult for me to kind of step into this world, it's easier and quicker for me to do it. Well, you're actually depriving your children of the kind of training instruction they need to develop into mature people, right? Not only are you depriving them from contribution in your own family, but it's their future families that you got to be thinking about. So think about that. Now, here, here's another thought. Consider this. As image bearers, aren't we called to create and commune far more than we're called to consume and isolate? It seems like in today's culture, 
So many families, so many of us uh, as individuals, we're consuming things, we're isolating uh, from other people, whether it's we just close the door in our families elsewhere, or whether it's isolating from friends. Uh, and of course, those glowing rectangles don't help, right? And yet, when you look at the scriptures, it seems like we're called to create and commune with each other and the Lord far more than we're called to consume and isolate. What can you do to promote this? Now, this might mean more Legos and less Netflix. It might mean more cooking together and less isolation in the rooms. It might mean more exploration outside and less aimlessness in the house, more reading and board games and less time with glowing rectangles. So think about that. Create, commune, contribute. I think there's Bible-shaped wisdom in that as we're thinking about training our children. Okay, let's move to the final sphere uh, the final uh, kind of uh, household code relationship that Paul talks about, looking at verses five through nine, godly relationships at work. So um, before diving into this relationship, we must recognize there's, there's kind of more to this. There's a line of separation here between the first century world and us because masters and slaves aren't quite bosses and workers, right? Masters and slaves were part of the same household. Obvious, obviously, the institution of slavery is different than the workplace environment. Hopefully for you, right? I mean, hopefully that's the case. And yet, the master-slave relationship is more than just kind of a household relationship. It's also an economic or business relationship in the first century. And, and especially in the first century where business would often operate out of the home, okay? Um, and so we can take principles from master-slave relationship in this passage, apply them to bosses and workers. Now, we have to understand a few things before we jump in here. So in the Roman Empire, there were upwards of 60 million slaves, okay? About one-third of Ephesus' population was made up of slaves. So it's fascinating to see how Paul deals with this. Paul is not trying to stir up a social reform campaign, right? What he does is he directly addresses Christian slaves in their daily struggles. He doesn't say, stop being a slave, like run away. He says, actually, uh, submit to your master. This is what it looks like to be a Christian in this particular situation. That's what Paul does. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.21, listen to this. Are you a slave? Don't let it concern you. If you can become free, take the opportunity. And in our passage, notice Paul directs masters and slaves to consider that they are now brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? There's a, a new connection that has emerged. And so this is why, why he tells Philemon, slave master, Christian, to welcome Onesimus, a Christian slave, no longer as a slave, but to welcome him now as a brother. Remember this? So nobody in the Roman Empire cared about slaves in this way. I mean, Paul, Paul is bringing out a revolutionary perspective here. So we should listen to Paul's principles. So he begins by talking about workers and how they should relate to their bosses. So look at verses 5 through 8. They should obey. They should obey as slaves of Christ. So there's a general kind of spirit of submissive obedience that workers have towards their bosses. I'm going to do what you ask me to do. Of course, within reason, within biblical bounds. So not when asked to do something immoral. Think about the Hebrew midwives in Egypt. Remember this, Exodus chapter 1, when they refused to kill those babies? Okay. Not also when asked to do something idolatrous. So think of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel chapter 3. Hey, you should bow down before this statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And they're like, nope, not going to do that. That's idolatry. Not when asked to suppress the gospel. 
So think about the apostles when they refused to obey instructions of the Sanhedrin to stop preaching Jesus. They're like, whatever, we're going to preach Jesus. So, so within these kind of bounds, within these principles, we can joyfully still accept the instruction of our bosses. Now, why? Why should we do that? Well, let's read on. This is so instructive, by the way. So you're going to walk into your weeks, and many of you are employed, and you've got a boss, you've got coworkers. These principles are so helpful. You can apply this tomorrow morning, right? So a Christian's work, according to verse 5, is part of their obedience to Jesus. Do you see that? Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. And then verse 6 talks about how our work is as slaves of Christ. So not as people pleasers. Ultimately, Jesus is our boss. And so we're trying to please him. We're working for him. And then you see in the rest of the passage, another kind of enticement, another promise is that as we look ahead, we can work in such a way where we're looking ahead at this great reward. You know, some of our bosses, some of our coworkers, we're in work environments that are very difficult and, and there's no reward. There's, there's, we're often maybe overlooked and we're having to carry uh, extra burdens and people don't really see us. Well, Paul says, listen, God sees you. He's pleased and he's going to reward you someday in, in heaven. You know, as you think about this, everything we do, right, whether that's chores in the house or worship on Sunday morning or you know, the, the engineering work you might do on a Tuesday, it's all with our heavenly master in view. That's what Paul's driving at. It's all as slaves of Christ, part of our obedience to Jesus, right? And because of this Bible-shaped working mentality, hear me now, Christians should be the best workers in every company and office. They should be the best. Now, I heard this story. I read about this actually recently. There's a currency-broking firm in London uh, where the senior staff, they, they were in this you know, kind of boardroom, and they started mocking some other staff in the company uh, because they were Christians. And they were mocking them. And the director kind of walks into the room, and, and, and he hears the names of the Christians that they're mocking. And even though he kind of agrees with, with the mocking, he says this. He says, you know, you got to admit it, though. These Christians, they are some of the best workers in our company. Where did that come from, you know? That's what we should be aiming at. So, so friends, are you a good worker? Are you a good worker? Are you easy to lead? Are you a good follower in your workplace environment? If you've got a concern, do you communicate it directly to your supervisor or boss? Or do you grow bitter and gossip and, and you become a difficult person in your office as a result? You've seen it. I've seen it too. Notice the general posture of the worker here humble, obedient, hardworking, desiring to serve God. Listen, if that's your posture, you'll not only be a great worker, but you'll be able to sustain tough work situations. And then finally, look at verse 9. Finally, masters or bosses are to lead as fellow slaves of Christ. Verse 9 says, And masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them, because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Uh, and of course, the idea here is really simple. Masters, bosses are called to treat their workers well in the same way. So, so if you want respect, you need to give respect. If you want sincerity, you need to be sincere. You want to show the same dedication to them, those are, that are under you, as you hope that they will give to you and their work, which is, of course, under you. This doesn't mean we abdicate our authority as bosses or supervisors, right? But we want to wield that authority. We want to use that authority to serve, to love, and offer direction and accountability. We want to do that all in a kind and loving manner. Is that, 
Is that the nature of your supervision, those of you that have people under you? And what should motivate the Christian boss? We'll take a look again at verse 9. Bosses and workers have the same master. Even if your workers aren't Christian, we are all accountable to the same God, and God doesn't show favoritism, says Paul. Typically, those in higher positions, you know, they have all kinds of, all kinds of kind of social perks and privileges, right, uh, within the workplace, sometimes in the world. But Paul says there's no bias with God. Bosses don't get more rewards because they have bigger cars and nicer houses, right? We need to know this when we're working, when we're supervising. CEOs and people who pick up our trash will stand in the same line on Judgment Day. So Christian bosses should remember this, to have a long view, to recognize that we are all under God. So we should be firm but fair, courageous but kind, assertive but attentive to our workers. If you're a boss, remember the way Jesus wielded his unmatched authority. Listen to this passage. This is Mark chapter 10. Listen carefully. It's speaking exactly to what we're talking about right now. Jesus says to his disciples, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, but not so with you. For, reason, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you're a supervisor, if you're a boss, if you have some sort of authority in your particular company, do you hear what Jesus is saying? You need to wield your authority, not like the Gentiles, not like the world, not like the pagans. You need to wield your authority like Jesus for the good of others, to serve them. So there you have it. Rightly ordered relationships in the home and in the workplace. Now, I want to close by making a few more comments. And I want us to understand why this is so important to Paul first and God more importantly. Why are these commandments here in this letter? Why did Paul like spill this ink to write this stuff? Well, these commandments are absolutely vital because God wants to display the victory of the cross, not just on Sunday mornings when we gather but Mondays through Saturdays when we're in the home and in the workplace. How much thought do you give to your Monday through Saturday lives in terms of, I'm serving Jesus here. That's what these nine verses push us to consider. That when we submit to the rule of Christ as children or parents or workers or bosses, the triumph of the cross, the glory of the resurrection, that's on display. So new life in Christ doesn't just permeate our Sunday singing and our sermon listening and our community group times. It ought to permeate our marriages, our parenting, our work relationships. So we've got this incredible privilege, incredible joy to live for God in all of our relationships, right? And, and we have incredible reasons to fight against our failings and flaws in the home and in the workplace. I don't know about you, but there's something so precious about these two relational spheres. Some of the dearest people that we're in, connected to are in these two spheres, right? And so it's, it's not only so precious to us, but also is a place where, oh my goodness, look at my sin. Look at my weakness. That's how I feel at least. So it's fascinating to remember that Jesus took on flesh to save us. He lived the Christian life on our behalf. He was born into a family of a workman, right? And he lived perfectly by the principles of the creator. 
So when he died in our place, he was punished for our sins in the home and in the workplace. So we can be forgiven. So we can seek his strength to change, to be different husbands and fathers and workers and so forth, right? He died not only to forgive our sins and your sins as a father or a boss or a mom, but also to provide the precise precise amount, uh, allotment of grace needed for you to grow this week. So I want you to be encouraged. You have a great privilege in front of you in the home, in the workplace, but you also have incredible resources, gospel resources to help you grow. Amen. Let's take a moment to uh, consider the passage and prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper.